Matthew chapter 8. We are continuing through the book of Matthew, following Christ. We will start in verse 18 and read through the end of the chapter 34. Matthew 8, 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead Bury the dead. And when he got in the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him and said, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass by that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, going into the city, and they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, how we yearn to be fed with your heavenly manna. We ask that you would feed us now. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'd have us to see three things this evening on the three separate stories that we had there. First, Jesus the God-man is sovereign over our human lives. Second, Jesus the God-man is sovereign over nature. And third, Jesus the God-man is sovereign over the devil and his principalities. So recall, we are following Christ. What has he done? He went through the temptation in the wilderness. He said, I am going to preach the gospel. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe. And then he preached the Sermon on the Mount. He came down. And last time we spoke about his miracles. He was doing miracle after miracle. And so now he's continuing on. He he had this giant mass of people. And now he's leaving them. 
uh, there is a note we can make about that. Sometimes when you're in ministry, there's a great need. I mean, there were countless, no doubt, people who still wanted to be healed and people who wanted to follow. And yet Christ had to shut it down and say, we're going across. So sometimes even in your ministry, while there is great need, you have to make decisions on leaving, on closing down, on, on going from one place to another. And this is the case here. He is getting in the boat. Now, this gives us an opportunity. It gives us the opportunity to see what these people, these masses, many of them are saying, look at what this Christ did. He heals people. I'm going to follow him. And so let's come to two examples of people who said, we're going to follow you. And then what happened? So verse 19, a scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Well, First of all, if you had somebody that came up to you, if you're doing street evangelism or you're talking to somebody and they say, I like this Jesus, I want to follow him wherever he goes. I mean, how happy would you be? That's a wonderful thing. You'd say, well, here, pray this prayer and go on your way. And things are very, very good. Um, Christ often does not use the evangelism styles that we use in the 21st century. Um, how does he respond to the scribe? And, and make no mistake, this is a great statement. He says, I want to follow you. That's, that's commendable. We ought to want to follow Christ. And yet, what was Christ's response here? Um, he emphasizes his demand. He says in verse 20, foxes have holes and birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He is not trying to make this light. Oftentimes in evangelistic uh, altar calls, you'll hear they're just begging people. I know you might be afraid of people looking at you from the chair, but come down, come, come. And you're just begging people to do this. And Christ is almost doing the opposite. Oh, you do want to follow me, huh? Do you actually know what it's going to cost you? Do you know that you're going to have to follow me? Do you know this? He's not lessening it. He's making it greater. Let's not pass by, by, by the way, the fact that the Son of Man had no home. I mean, if you were God and you were going to come, you know, you're in the heavenly places and you're going to come down to earth, wouldn't you at least give yourself a palace and some royal guard that could carry you wherever you're going rather than having to walk with sandals through the, the dust as you're going through this region? Wouldn't you give yourself some of these pleasant things? And yet this is the heart of your God. He sacrifices everything to come down and spread the gospel of the kingdom of God to save sinners whom, by the way, he knows are going to crucify him. This is the heart of your God. He is a servant. Oh, Christ, how beautiful you are to us. Matthew thirteen forty four through 46 speaks of the buried treasure, the pearl of great value. We will get to those in this. Just quickly, I'll mention, uh, quote it to you. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a hidden field. Uh, which a man finds and covers up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of a fine pearl, who on finding the one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. And the point here, of course, is when you do give up everything, when you say, yes, Christ, I will follow you, even though it means giving up whatever that may be, it's worth it. It's not like, woe is me, I'm having to do this for Christ. You are following the Savior. It is worth it. Now, uh, dear one, I need to ask you, what 
would you be willing to give up if you're in this situation? Now, um, should we say that this means none of us ought to have homes? I mean, we all have homes, I assume. We live somewhere. What, uh, what does this mean for us? What's the application? Are we supposed to give up our home and start wandering around? Is that what we are to do? Well, um, I'll quote for you Charles Simeon before I give you this answer. He was uh, the pastor in Cambridge in the 1800s. Though he was the maker and proprietor of all things, Christ chose to dwell in more destitute conditions than the beasts of the field. He has shown that to serve him is an honor and to enjoy God is most is the most desirable state on earth. And that whether we have a large or a small portion in our way, we are to use that to follow him. It is our duty and it should be our one concern. So one point being, if that was what God was calling you to, yes, the answer should be you should sell your home. If that was what, what he was calling you to, you might think, ah, I don't know if I would want to. But you should. You ought to. You would not be the loser in that deal. But secondly, imagine the situation that's happening right there. Christ is on this side of the river. He's about to go to the other river. If this guy is wanting to follow him, he has to go with him. And Jesus isn't going to be back by this place. So at that moment, that was his choice. I'm going to leave my home and follow Christ. You are not in that particular situation right now. You are not. Christ is ruling and reigning in heaven, and he has mission right here in Houston for many Christians. Now, perhaps he is calling you to go to the other side of the world and be a missionary. And praise God if he is, and give glory to him, and sell all your things, and go if that's what he's calling you to. Glory to that. But there are plenty of things that God calls people to in this city. So no, it is not necessarily true that God is calling you to sell your home. But then secondly, consider this. It is often the case, sometimes in scriptures, that Christ demands things that he would not demand universally for everybody. You can think of another situation where he laid a heavy burden on somebody. Uh, Let us get to that as we turn to this next verse, verse 21 and 22. Another disciple came and said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus says, follow me, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, this one hits almost even harder than the first one. I mean, giving up a house, okay, but leaving your father after he has died, not even going to his funeral is okay. Are we not supposed to have funerals? Are we supposed to let the dead bury the dead? Well, I'm spiritually alive, so I ought not to go to funerals. No, of course, that is not the situation that he's calling us to. One, before we get to the the response, let's, let's let this hit heavy. We know that this is hard because Christ himself says we are to honor our parents. The Ten Commandments tells us we are to honor our parents. We know that this is a hard one because it strikes against what we know God has told us, that we are to honor our parents. Matthew 15, 3 through 9. Christ himself is saying uh, to the Pharisees, you guys are pretending like you're holy. You're selling all your, your, your tithing on even your spices. But when it comes to your parents, you say, well, the money I would have given you, I'm going to give to the church instead. Too bad. And he says, may it not be. You ought to honor your parents. So these, these seem like contradictions to us. And we get back to this point that there are oftentimes 
in the scriptures where Christ demands something of one person that he does not demand universally for everybody. A good example would that be the rich young ruler, Mark 10, 17 through 23. You remember he's another one when he comes up and he says, good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Those of you who do street evangelism, you know, you'd love if somebody said, what should I do? And our response may be Romans 10, 9, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and, and you will be saved. And uh, we would go on and say things like that. But what does Christ do? He says two answers that we typically wouldn't. He says, obey the law and sell everything you have. Um, is that the requirement to get to heaven? Must you sell everything you have? Is that the requirement? Uh, the answer there, again, is no. But why was he saying that? He's, he's working on what the idol of the heart is. So he's telling this person, I want to see if you're willing to do this. Are you willing to sell everything you have? Are you willing to come follow me rather than go to your parents' funeral? What is this? Another example, obviously, Abraham and Isaac. Sacrifice your son. In that case, he did not have him go through with it, but he was saying, what are you willing to do? How much am I worth to you? What is my value to you? Now, question for you. If this father was a reasonable person, was a believer, and uh, just think about this scenario. The son would, if the father was still alive, he could, he could like talk to him from beyond the grave. He could say, hey, dad. I met the son of God today. I know your funeral is tomorrow, but he's going across the river, the sea. Can I go with him? What do you think the father's response would be if he could respond? Yes, go. You have the son of God. Follow him. So even though the situation seems like it's a stark one, it's a no brainer. In that situation where Christ is leaving to go right now, this is it's happening. I'm going to follow you. Of course you know the answer. It really is not uh, that complicated. Richard Caldwell puts it this way. You do not negotiate the terms of your surrender to Christ. You do not get to say, let me get back to you. Or I'll do this only if I have to be demanded this much of me. You don't get to say those things. Notice this is about following Christ. In verse 19, the scribe comes and says, I will follow you. But he doesn't. In verse 20, the second man is asked, follow me. But he doesn't. And then as we move into the next section in verse 23, it says Christ got in the boat. And what did the disciples do? They followed. This is about following Christ. If you are a follower of Christ, do you follow him? Now, make no mistake. You know, I've said you don't have to not go to your parents' funeral. You don't have to sell your home and have no place to lay your head. But that is not to lessen it to the thing of, oh, good, I don't, I don't, nothing's required of me. This is easy. No. Something is required. If you are not having to give up things in your life that you want to do in order to serve Christ, you should reevaluate. What are my priorities? Am I really answering God's call in each situation? It is costly. Christ has said, count the cost of following me. It is costly in a certain sense. It's not costly in that he paid the ultimate price. He's the one who died on the cross for our sins. So it's not costly in that manner. Christ paid that cost. But when you follow Christ, you do give up things, certain things that you appreciate. We come now to the second section. God, uh, Jesus, the God man, is sovereign over nature. 
verses 23 through 27, it speaks of them getting in the boat and the storm arising. So verse 24, a great storm arose on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. First, notice these are disciples of Christ, Christians, and they are in trouble. There is, it's a foolish thing to assume that Christians will not go through times of trouble. Uh, this is a time of trouble. These are fishermen. So they, they have been on rough seas before. If even they are afraid because they are being swamped by the waves, that lets you know the urgency of the situation. Christians will go through hard times in this life. There's no doubt about that. John Chrysostom, the Archbishop of Constantinople in the 300s, said, Jesus sleeps to give occasion for their timidity and to make their perception of what was happening more distinct. He permits the storm that by their deliverance they may, might attain a clearer perception of the benefit. So notice, verse 24, he's asleep. Christ is asleep in this storm that people are afraid that they're going to die. Look at your God. Nature does not cause him to be fearful. He is the one that controls it. Thunder claps cause us to shudder. It doesn't startle Christ. He is not concerned by it. But Spurgeon points out, though he does not listen to the storm, he listens to the cries of his followers, of his people. And so it is. God would not have to be concerned with the cries of anybody, but he listens to our cries as we raise them up to heaven. So, dear one, know that when you are praying to God, he hears, he listens to the cries of his people. Verse 25 says, they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Now, in the next verse, Christ is going to show us that this is an example of a weak faith. Uh, but Cyril of Alexandria in the 400s points out there's a little bit of both. There is some faith in this statement. What's the part that is, is the bad part, though? So the exclamation, save us, is commendable, for it shows faith. But to say we are perishing brings a charge of littleness of faith against those who were in deep distress. They indeed put their hope in Christ, who was sailing with them. They were not totally faithless, but at that point they had little faith, since in their danger they did not take courage from the fact that Christ was with them. So the part that shows the faith is, if, if Christ is a regular person, just a human being, what good does waking him up and asking him to save them do? So they recognize that Christ is something special. He is the Savior of the world. Um, so they are waking him, and that does show faith. But the fact that they were afraid for their lives, that they were going to die, knowing that Christ was with them, that was a weak faith. And we see that in verse 26. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Uh, do you see the disconnect? And we all we all can uh, understand that. We've all been through that. In my living room, I have a large copy of the print of Rembrandt's Christ upon the sea upon the sea. No, Christ in the storm upon the Sea of Galilee. And um, it's a beautiful work of the lights and darks and the waves and the mist. And you can see the, the disciples frantically trying to, to work through it. It's a wonderful painting. And on the bottom of the frame, I have there uh, 8.26, Matthew 8.26. Why are you afraid? Oh, you have little faith. I see it every day. And would you believe that I still am afraid often? 
seeing that, knowing that Christ is there, would you believe that I'm constantly, or not constantly, but often in that situation? How good is our God that even though we have little faith, that we are weak, he still loves us. He still gives the grace to overcome this. Samuel Rutherford says, your heart is not the compass that God steers by. He is the faithful one. You will have weak faith at times, and yet Christ does not. Um, did he only save the people in the boat that had strong faith? Is that what Christ did? Oh, you guys were weak. Go out. You, you get to drown in the storm. No, he saved his followers. Let fear be for you a check engine light. Whatever it is that you're afraid of, they were afraid they were going to die. First of all, if they were to sink there and go down with Christ, then that would have been their entrance into glory. That would have been God can take our lives anytime he pleases. He does not owe us one breath of life. And for Christians, death is just entry into the glory. And so if it had been their time, that would have been their time. They're with Christ. So whatever we're fearing, if we're fearing our lives, it's showing we aren't holding our lives in in. In correct view, if we're afraid that we're going to be destitute, it's showing that we're not trusting God. Whatever the fear is, the thing that you're afraid of, let that fear point to what the idol is in your heart, what you're cherishing too much above Christ or God. Let it point you to some heart searching as the psalmist does often. He often has to preach to his own heart. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you afraid? Why? And so we have to do the same sort of thing. Some of you are going through hard times. You are in a boat and you're being swamped by waves even now. And dear one, I just want to say to you, do you know who is in the boat with you? Do you know that you have no ounce of fear? None of that is justified. God is with you. Christ, the merciful one to whom the storm is nothing, says one word and it's over. He can do that in your life if he so desires. Whatever you're going through, God is sovereign and he is with you. Abraham Kuyper says he is sovereign over every square inch of creation. I mean, in Joshua, how many times does he say over and over again, do not fear, take courage. I'll quote for you just Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Not be strong and courageous because you're strong. Be strong and courageous because God is strong and he is with you. Your strength does not come from yourself. John Snyder says to live by faith is not to sit in the boat and not feel fear. It is to turn to Christ in it so that he allays your fears in their natural persons. Yes, it is natural for waves that are swamping a boat to cause you to fear. And then you cast your your look over at Christ. You turn your eyes to Christ. There's the Savior. He's not concerned so we turn to him in that we are not the Messiah ourselves. We will have these fears that pop up, but we are to react to them as Christ would have us react to them. Verse 26, he then rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. Notice the contrast. When was another time in scripture where there was a storm on a boat? Well, Jonah. Notice the contrast here. Storm on the boat with Jonah. What happens to him? Thrown overboard. Storm on the boat with Christ, 
The waves stop. The storm stops. Christ is God. Uh, Luke 11.32 says, The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this against this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, but now something greater than Jonah is here. Christ has made it explicit. He is the greater Jonah. Verse 27 Men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Notice that the disciples are not perfect. They're not. They're afraid and they're constantly growing. And when they have each of these experiences, it causes their faith to grow. And so it is with us. You're not perfect. You are going to go through situations where you are at the end of your wits and yet you will grow through them. What does this encounter with Christ cause the disciples to do? Worship. What sort of man is this? Ah, look at this God. He is amazing. The hymn, It is well with my soul, says, Lord, haste the day when faith shall be sight. So each of these encounters that we have on this planet cause us to worship God. Wow, God, you were faithful. You were so good. I see you clearly. If on this planet, when we see but dimly, we can have those encounters with Christ and our hearts can be uh, lifted up to heaven. Imagine just one moment in glory when you see God unveiled his greatness, the, the joy that that will bring to you. Oh, dear one. If anybody ever had the apprehension that, oh, heaven's going to be boring, we're just singing praises to God, <laughs> the, the experience of being with God will be ever-increasing joy in Him. We ought not to fear such a foolish, childish thing. The disciples say, what sort of man is this? And now we turn to the last section because we're going to get the answer. The demons are going to even know who is this man. So verses 28 through 34, we'll start in 28. Two demon-possessed men met with him coming out of the tombs. Demon-possessed. Yes, we believe in demons. We believe that the devil is real. We believe in the principalities of darkness. You know, Jefferson kind of thought Jesus was an okay guy as a moral teacher, but he cut out of his Bible all of the spots where there was any miracle or anything supernatural. And that is the hip thing for university people to do. We, we, we don't believe in the supernatural stuff, and yet the scriptures are clear. There is a devil. He does have demons. Ephesians 6 talks about spiritual warfare. It, you must not be deceived. There is the principalities of darkness. All right, Mark 5, 1 through 20 is the parallel passage to this one, and it gives us some more detail. Uh, it's the name of these demons that were uh, occupying these two men was Legion. And Legion in a uh, Roman army was about 5,000 people. So this is a many people. The, uh, we're also told in the Mark section that these two men are crying out and cutting themselves with stones. They are in a pitiable condition. They are wretched. They're isolated. They are self-harming. They are homeless. They are in a pitiable condition. Notice, um, oftentimes when we're going, walking on a sidewalk downtown or something and you see somebody that's um, unpleasant, that is dirty, that doesn't seem right in the head, what's your inclination? 
think I'm going to move further away. I don't want to deal with this. What is Christ's inclination? He is going to go into the situation. It does not matter. If you think your sin makes you unappealing to Christ, He is willing to come to you regardless of the situation that you are in. Sin is evil and it is hateful and it is odious in the eyes of God. But Christ will come and he will deal with that sin. He does not turn his nose up or turn away. Verse 29, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? This is the first time in the book of Matthew that it is explicitly said Christ is the Son of God. When he was dealing with uh, Satan in, uh, during the temptation, Christ said, if you are the son of God, do these things. He was twisting things in the temptation, trying to get Christ to, to do certain things. But here, these demons know who Christ is. So what can we make of this? Well, one, notice knowledge about Christ is not sufficient. You can know who Christ is and it may not be saving. Uh, James 2.19 says, you believe there is one God good, even the demons do that and shudder. They recoil at that knowledge. So knowledge is not good enough. The Protestant reformers differentiated faith and knowledge into three things using Latin terms. The first, notitia. Knowledge of bare facts. That's just, I know that this is what the gospel is. I know it. Second is ascensus. Intellectual assent. I believe that they are true. So you can know that somebody says, here's what the gospel is. Okay, I'm aware of that. Two, you can think it's true. I do think that's true, but yet not give yourself to it. So the demons, they knew the facts of Christ, and they knew he was the Son of God, and yet they did not submit to him. That's the last. Fiducia, trusting, turning the heart to look at Christ, trusting in him. There's often said the chair analogy. You can know that a chair exists and what it's for, but you don't trust it. You don't place your trust in it until you rest in it. You put your weight in it. Sometimes when you are um, sitting in a flimsy plastic chair, you don't have that sense that uh, that fiducia. I'm not trusting this fully. I don't. I want to get out of this chair and move to a different one that's more sturdy. So you must, it is not good enough to just know the facts of the gospel. What does your heart say about Christ? Do you trust him? Do you rest in him? We sang that great hymn, Jesus, I am resting, resting. Do you rest in him? Verse 32, and he said to them, go, and they went. So notice here, the powers of darkness do not rival God in any way. He tells them to go and they must. This is not a battle he had to fight here. They must obey God. This is uh, Augustine. When he was converted, he came out of Manichaeism. Manichaeism. He taught, uh, that religion taught, there's two equal and opposites. Here's God and here's another God, the evil God, and they're warring and it's a battle. That's not the religion we believe in. There is one God, God Yahweh. The devil is a created being. He's a creature like all others. He's in rebellion to him. And one day Christ, when uh, God, when it is time, he will end the devil, throw him into the pit. But right now he is in rebellion and God is allowing that. John Calvin says it this way. The devils breathe nothing but rebellion against God. And yet with all their swelling pride, they are crushed and fall in a moment. 
Their malice and obstinacy, which is never subdued, ceases not to struggle against the government of God, and yet it is compelled to yield. God is the sovereign one. Martin Luther says, even the devil is God's devil. You know from the story of Job, devil, the devil could only do whatever God, as much leash as God would give him, and no further. God said, you can do thus and no further. So though the devil is a foul enemy, he is no match for God. The last verses, verse 33 and 34, it speaks of the drowning of the pigs. Why in the world would Christ allow the pigs, allow the demons to go into the pigs and kill them? They're demons for Pete's sakes. Why, why even do that? No, done. And the pigs are okay. The men are healed. Why would he do that? It's strange when you think about it. Well, first of all, uh, one of our inclinations may be to feel pity for the, the pig farmers. And that just shows that we are so man-centered. If we're, if we're casting aspersion on God, who does what is right, who does the right thing, and if we're saying, ah, I don't think so, what about these pig farmers? We are being man-centered. First of all, do you know God owns everything? Everything that you own, you are a steward of. God has given it to you for a time as a gift. He can take whatever he pleases from you at any time, and it does you no wrong. It is God's, not yours. We, we become man-centered, think, well, these pigs are, are, are those people's pigs. No, they are God's. If he wants to use them in this way, he certainly may. Secondly, it is good. It's not just that God can do anything. It's good that God did this. Why? Why is it good that he sent these pigs to their doom? Well, one, it confirmed Christ's identity. And at this time, we need Christ's identity to be confirmed. If these two men were healed and this show of Christ's powers is shown and uh, what could unbelievers in the city think? Oh, well, they were just, you know, pretending these guys were just fooling us and they've gotten tired of it. And now they're coming back. And yet Christ sends these demons and they do these to these pigs. There is something supernatural happening here. It confirms his identity. But two, it is good that Christ did this because it causes conflict for the people of the city to show them what's in their heart. It's a wake up call to them. What do we mean by this? Well, notice when they come down and they see these two people who have been tormented by the evil one who are in this pitiable condition and now they're saved. What is their response? Oh, joy. Thank goodness you're back. Jesus, good. Thank you so much for doing this. We thought we'd lost these two forever. And yet they were more concerned about pigs than human lives. Oh, no, they they need a wake up call. These people of the city, they need a wake up call. Charles Spurgeon says here was a whole city at a prayer meeting praying against their own blessing. Think of having the Lord among them, healing the worst of diseases and yet entreating him to go away from them. They would be rid of the one glorious being who alone could bless them. Horrible was their prayer, but it was heard and Jesus departed out of their coasts. Dear one, if God uses some situation to wake you up, you ought to thank him for it and turn to him. 
Another quote by Spurgeon is that he, he, he kisses, uh, when God uses a rod to discipline him, he kisses the hand that bears the rod. He loves the discipline that God would give because it is waking him up. It is correcting him. It is a mercy when God uses any means to wake you up from tragedy. Those people should have rejoiced to see the Son of God, and yet they asked him to leave. If you're here tonight and you have not rejoiced in the Lord, you ought to take this very moment to do that. Rejoice in him. He is the good God. Turn to him and be thankful no matter what situation you're going through. Thank him and turn to him. Secondly, if you are committed to Christ already, you ought to marvel at his power. What sort of man is this? You ought to worship and adore him and you ought to follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you that you recorded these things for us. You are indeed the good, holy God. Help us to be captivated by Christ, to adore and worship him, the Son of God. Help us to follow him in all things. Keep us faithful to you. In Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. Please stand as we sing our last.